0: Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, welcome back to the Evolve Move Play podcast. This week, my guest is Michael Frosty Snow. Michael, or as I generally refer to him, Frosty, is somebody I've known in the parkour community for over 15 years. Uh, We've worked on a TV show together, and I've seen him build one of the most unique careers that I've seen in the parkour community. He's an amazing athlete. He's accomplished incredible things athletically. He's been a very successful competitor athletically within parkour, um, but he also has gone on to really utilizes creativity for many different purposes. And he's become kind of the premier color commentary guy for the parkour community. So I wanted to dig into his ideas on creativity and how to carve a career path with movement. I think he's got some of the greatest insights to share in this region. He's also really involved with Tempest Freerunning Academy and has helped design a lot of that. Most recently, he was involved in this amazing project with Pasha Petcoons and Red Bull designing a giant pinball machine. So I'm going to put that in the, uh, in the description below, you can check that out. It's an amazing video. So, yeah, without any further ado, enjoy my conversation with Frosty. Frosty, welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to be here, Ray. Thanks for having me. So, with you, I wanted to go back to the beginning and just ask you a little bit about how you got started. Cause my understanding is you're almost one of the first people to ever do parkour in the States, right? Like, you're, did you start with, um, well, what got you started doing parkour?
1: Um, well, I got started actually because of a martial arts teacher, a good okay. friend of my family, um, because my parents were both involved in martial arts um, since before I was born. And uh, he just, he saw it on Ripley's Believe It or Not. You know, okay, back yeah. when it was uh, Dean Cain on TBS, you know, before... Before even re- before uh, YouTube, before all this stuff, he's just like, check this out. Next week it'll be on again because we had to wait for reruns. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and it was it was a little feature on the Yamakasi. And I remember they showed like a bunch of crazy French dudes with like a map of the city, being like, "Here's point A, and here's point B, and we're gonna get there." And then running around and doing a bunch of stuff in car parks. And I was just blown away. That same time, I think I had I had got I had like saved up my money and bought up my first video camera to shoot you know jackass videos with my friends. So my, my best buddy, Bill, and I just went out and s- jumped off the porch and then went to the park and jumped off everything at the park and then just kept looking around the city for things to, to do. And it, it sort of just all grew from there. That was the beginning of, of everything, um, at least for me here in the States, because I was like, I need more of this. I need, I need to find people that are doing this. I need to get people to do this if there's no one to do it.
0: So do you remember what year that was? Was that like 20, 2003,
1: 2004? Yeah, yeah. Because I think I was four, 14 at the time and I'm 34 now. So it's about 20, 20, years. 20 years ago. And um, yeah, this is like right right when I think things were starting to pick up on the internet and stuff. So there was no, you know, like really social stuff. It was all web forums. And there was only really one place for parkour on the internet. And that was a, a like a French language forum. But they know, really parkour.net. didn't like. <laughs> yeah, it was like like nobody there even liked people that weren't in France doing anything. And yeah. I remember seeing this dude Blake that was one of the first guys who actually started the UK scene. Um and he's the one who in, he started did the first international meetup and uh that's that's where you know urban free flow sort of grew out of how Eventually, Mark Turok Rock and EZ yeah. got involved, and then it, you know it, it worked its way over from there. But the first people I met in the U.S. Um, were actually a small group of guys in in Michigan, and then and then the Chicago scene actually was one of the first ones that really developed um, in the at least in the in the Midwest and in the big big U.S. scenes because. They had great architecture there. They had a great opportunity, and Ando and his brother Cloud Ryan Cousins. They uh, they sort of kicked things off. They were some of the first guys I ever saw doing like pre legit flips. I remember the, seeing a guy do a double leg for the first time, which blew nice. my mind. It was like, yeah, oh yeah. my gosh, what is even happening? And I remember going and meeting up with them, and things just kept kept growing. You know, first we had our first statewide jam that that we helped organize um, in the in Michigan, and then. The first uh, nationwide jam in, in New York, which was amazing. You know, you saw like 150 guys just running around. I fell in the Hudson River. It was the best time of my life. You know, I was <laughs> like, just, just getting into high school then. And then eventually, I remember we did the first international jam in Toronto. and Met uh, Dano and Drunk Monk and a, and a bunch of those guys. And that's where I met Mark Turok as well for the first time. And it was just insane. I just remember like over 200 people just swarming the city. And here I was this kid who a couple of years earlier didn't, didn't know anybody that did anything like this. And it just yeah. grew so fast.
0: Yeah. I came into the scene in 2005 or I started, I think I was like, I may have discovered it in early, in like late 2004. But when I came around, it still felt like there were almost nobody in the United States doing it, right? Like there was, yeah. and, uh, you know. There I think of myself as part of the en avance to jours generation, right? Like there mm-hmm. that was the specific video that David Bell yeah. made that was shared around via like web, you know, video sharing yeah. sites before yeah. YouTube.
1: I had a, that, I had like a downloaded real player file of it that I kept yep. like watch before going out to go training.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and it was like for a long time I was like that was like the first generation, but Tyson had been training longer than me, Tyson Cheku, co-founder of Parkour Visions. Yeah. Um but he, like, he's vague. He's terrible memory. I don't know. He, like, you can't pin him down. But he came from the Ripley's, believe it or not, generation, which is, like, yeah. is the true OGs of American parkour. Um, oh, yeah. How many guys do you know who, who came from that era and stayed in it? Ando, Ryan, was Levi from that era?
1: Um, Levi started a couple of years after I did. He, he okay. got into it. He, I remember he told me once he saw a video of, I think his name was Joe Yago. Um, Oh, I
0: go. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, do
1: do some some crazy tricks. And so he just really wanted to learn how to do, um, I think, a wall flip or something. He just like got so inspired to learn how to do tricks. So he was smart. Unlike Mm. me, who just like went and jumped off my porch. He went to the gymnastics facility and they were like, yeah, well, we can teach you a backflip. And then from there, it should be pretty easy. And we were very fortunate that Water's Edge Gymnastics in Traverse City Mission, which is a small town where Levi and I are from, They were a small gymnastics facility. They had some really great coaches and, and they were totally open to it. Unlike a lot of other gymnastics places, they early on saw, yeah, we could do this. And I think because you know it wasn't a huge gym, it wasn't like churning out Olympians or anything. They were open to doing stuff and they actually hosted some of the first Um, like parkour training open gym things and they were the ones who helped Levi learn his tricks so when I met Levi he was already doing big backflips off of stuff and I was just okay yeah you could maybe learn the ways of parkour (laughs) since you got a solid foundation and doing these insane tricks already Um, but yeah so he he was just a couple years after me and uh, we had a little crew of like former inline skaters and some of my jackass friends and just mostly just the crazy kids that sort of didn't fit in anywhere. We all just started running around town and climbing on stuff and editing it all to Lincoln Park songs.
0: <laughs> it sounds about sounds about right for the time. <laughs> yeah. So you you came up through the scene and you, you know, you you were really early on. You were involved in the organization of these jams early on, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I remember we had started to organize stuff and there was some different forums that we were going to. Um, I mean, Urban Free Flow had kicked off a U.S. Yeah. forum, which I remember we we started to sort of talk about wanting to do our own thing. And I think on the forum, they they it was sort of recognized that the U.S. scene was building its own thing. So then Mark Turok, I remember he was still a part of Urban Free Flow at the time, was like, yeah. Oh, we are going to start Urban Free Flow US and we'll invite you to be ambassadors. And like you've been nominated by people and sort of got on top of that stuff early on, which in yeah. its own way I think was really good because we were just kids who wanted to jump around and get more people jumping around. So having somebody with some sense of organization and structure. Um, albeit however loose or whatever motivated, it really led us to to start building something. And then I remember when Mark sort of split from UF and was like, well, I'm going to take this same team of people and I, and I think we should build our own thing just for the U.S., which was the start of American Parkour and eventually the tribe. And that was a really a, a big shift for me because it went from all of these little individual things where we're just messaging each other and trying to get whoever we could to come to stuff to say like, actually, let's build sort of a network of people that are all working together and I remember that was the first time we we all came together in DC to shoot the tutorial DVD that sort of laid out basics for all the different moves and that was the most real I think it had ever felt for me at the time because you know we got we got this like all these amazing athletes all the people I knew like Ryan Ford from Colorado and you know, like, I, I remember, like, seeing Jesse Woody, who was, like, at the time, I thought, like, the strongest man in the world. You know, <laughs> it was, like, just all these people who I, I, I remember seeing um, Paul Medeiros, Leon. He's yeah. just, like, had the biggest broad jumps I'd ever seen. And I was, like, yeah. where I was from, I had the biggest broad jumps I had ever seen. And mm-hmm. so it was just this cool moment to to really feel, like, not just people who are excited about about the sport, but people that wanted to to build something bigger, uh, uh, beyond even just like the the excitement around this idea, but the community that it could could develop, and uh, we were bringing those communities together, and it was, it, was, it was a really cool time. So,
0: when when Mark came over and started APK, that was two thousand six, two thousand seven
1: yeah it would have to be it was right around then because i remember i I graduated in high school in 2005 and we were already doing stuff then it was it was it was it was around that that time when everything was was building up and starting to happen um because i remember 2006 is when we did the madonna tour and we already had the, the tribe going and i remember that's was a big turning point for me because I basically was like, Ooh, am I going to stay in school? Like, am I going to keep going to college and like trying to get a degree in film or am I going to just do this full time? And so then by 2007, I was out of school and just full time as a pro athlete. And we'd already had like some small sponsors at the time. I got to work with, uh, um, some some various different people, but 510 was the big one at the time, and they were really investing in the sport in you know, a you know, in a big way for them, a small way now looking back at it. Yeah. But it was awesome to see like, oh my gosh, the shoe companies are like making shoes for free running, and they were like they weighed like 500 pounds, you know. Stealth rubber is yeah. not so stealthy when you're like trying to run on it, but uh, oh yeah, it was it was cool to
0: see. They did it come out. My my favorite shoe of all time was still the the 510 descent. The oh. when they came out with that like low a low-profile um, yeah. approach shoe. It was a crossover Dude. parkour and didn't didn't mark things up.
1: Yeah, it was really cool. It was it was great to see because they actually were one of the companies that really listened to the athletes and were like, oh, what we gave you wasn't great. Well, which of our shoes do you like? Okay, what can we do to that? I mean, when we got sponsored by K-Swiss, like for financially, for the development of the sport, I think it was a huge deal. But the shoes, everybody knows the Ariakis were terrible. And they didn't talk to anybody about that. They just had some random guy design it. And it was ironic because K-Swiss was already making some of the most popular free-running shoes. I mean, everybody from Daniel O'Baka to Oleg were wearing SI-18s and coveting them. And they were busy trying to slap these chunky Ariakis on everybody. And uh, so I think it was was definitely a, a growth point through there. And now we're obviously Way on the other side of it, where we're getting you know, you know yeah, for popcorn. us bias us, for us like real shoes made by free running companies, which I think has always been something I thought was going to be a game changer, and I think it has been, and it will continue
0: to be. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm still really curious, honestly, just because I came in in two thousand five, and like I said, it felt so small then. And by then, you'd been doing it for four years, right? Mm-hmm. So like, what were those, those first four years like, like, were you just kind of doing it quietly with your friends or was there stuff starting to percolate?
1: Um, I mean, in my mind, it was, it was just blowing up. And that was just me being like, Oh, there's like a couple people doing it. And it felt huge to me because I was like, I didn't know if this was, I was one of those kids that easily got excited about things, which nobody else cared about. And so I think it, like this was something where I could easily have seen it being a, not even a fad, like it hadn't even gotten to the place where it was a fad yet. I think that came later once you had like Madonna getting involved or Casino Royale or YouTube in the office, like, yeah, YouTube, like all those moments were moments when it could have been a fad. We weren't even at that place yet. We were well before that. So I think for me, I felt a lot of personal connection to it. And I also felt like the community we were building was very tight knit and, I was recognized as myself within it. You know, I think one of the reasons why everybody used their screen names as as like sort of like their B-boy names or your Mm -hmm. alter egos was because you got to build who you were in that place. And I was like an awkward... Uh, like multiracial kid in a small, pretty much all white, Northern Michigan town. And I felt like, oh, I actually have a sense of self now around this thing. And I, even in my town, I became known as like the kid who can do a backflip. And like, that's mm. how I got my prom date, and you know, like that's how I like, you know, was my signature for everything. And And so as I started to see more people popping up and being in some way, like a leader of that, that movement as it grew, felt amazing. So every time I heard of a new community, even if I wasn't involved, I got excited about it. I remember going to Hawaii to see my family out there and meeting up with Eric Terry, GameWise. He's like the guy who actually designed the APK logo and the tribe logo and a lot of the early stuff. He's an amazing artist. Um, And we got maybe five or six people together out in Hawaii. And I just thought it was like the coolest thing. It was the first time I wore my tribe shirt and I was like, yeah, yeah you know, I'm, I'm sponsored back in Michigan. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm out there and like, I've done some deals. I gotta, you know, I remember like we'd get these, these, these jobs. It would be like Timberland would want us to like pressure test some shoes and they'd give us like a hundred dollar gift card to a Timberland store. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I had this big gig out in Chicago. It was like really sick, they brought me out for it. But, but at the time it just felt like it was growing because people were like, oh my gosh, like I, I saw your stuff. Like I downloaded the video the other day. And, and I think you, you started to be like, oh, there's like, there is a world of people out there paying attention. It's just at the time it was really small, but all we saw was each other. And so yeah. every time these jams kept happening and each time they would be bigger the first statewide jam in Michigan was essentially like my crew of like maybe six or seven guys meeting up with another group that had five or six guys. And it felt amazing because that's twice as many people as I'd ever seen doing it seriously in one place. And then by the time we got to the international or the, the PKNY jam, that was like over a hundred people getting together and I was just blown away. It was, it was, it was as if it had exploded overnight, but of course that was still small. That was, that was just like a really well-organized event that got a lot of people there at the exact right time. And uh, I think it really started to, to make sense as more people in different areas started to raise their hand and say like, yeah, well, this is what I'm doing in my community. You could do this too. And like, okay, here's how we're organizing. Here's how we're talking to gymnastics places to let us use the facility. Here's how like the kinds of locations we're finding. Oh, you don't have good spots. Well, have you looked at um, parking garages? They tend to have really good stuff or like, hey, did you see this video? No, I didn't see it. Like, oh, here, let me get you this link. Like, because it was like, even just finding a video of somebody doing it. And, and one of the things I think is crazy is we were all just watching videos of David Bell and the Yamakaze and like getting illegal copies of the Yamaka, the Besson like Yamakaze film and being like, oh, this is what we should be doing. Like mm-hmm. seeing guys who'd already been doing it for over a decade and being yeah. like, okay, we're going to copy that stuff. There weren't like at the time, like, you know here's building blocks to make yourself like a more proficient trainer like here's like skills you can build up it's just like I I remember like one of the first moves we learned was how to do like a 270 cat to cat because there was just a spot to do it at the park and it was even that was like eight feet up but we're like it's fine there's like mulch and so we just fell a couple times and we like learned it and and then we're like, okay, well, what else can we do? And I remember doing early like versions of Dropcats, like Descent style, just because we were like, they're here and we found the things to do it. And there weren't a lot of other things, but we'd seen somebody do it in a video and we're like, let's go for it. Oh, well, I see them doing these giant jumps off of things. Like, let me jump off whatever is really big and that's gonna show if I'm good or not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember that era, yeah. Um, it was fun at that era because there was a bit of bank, blank space, right? There was a bit of like, you know, having to fill in the gaps. I remember looking at the Parkour.net and seeing like saldusha sal de fond, yeah, sal de bras, right? Like Lache. And like yeah, they were just images, right? They weren't even videos on the site. Right. And then <laughs> and then when like vaults 101 came out, I was like, oh yeah.
1: Wow. <laughs> Thank God somebody figured this out. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Actually uh, try all this stuff. Yeah. I mean we didn't even know the names of stuff. We used to call cat squeaks because that's the noise it made when we hit the wall. You know, like, it's like, Oh, let's, let's see if you can do a big squeak over there. Just try to hit it and and go for it.
0: Apologies for that. No worries. Um, Squeak. I like that. That's a good name.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, I think it's good that we survived that time. I mean, my body is still like, I'm still paying some of the price for some of those early days. But um, I think a lot of that learning ended up being the basis for you know, making, like I said, the first tutorial DVD, which is not great, but it helped a lot of people get started. And Mm -hmm. I think from the criticisms of that, then there's improved versions and now there's like better tutorials and now there's like a tutorial for everything. And there's tutorials, advanced tutorials for for doing even even better versions or harder things. And and I think now you see people learn, like you said, you can learn a backflip in 45 minutes and there's a space for that. There's ways to do that.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I remember. 2006 nobody could do a clean climb up right it was like levi and tyson that was it right now there's a million 11 year olds who can do a climb up and cork off the wall right yeah but
1: uh yeah i mean somebody had to pave the way for that with busted knees and bad top outs and now and now we're we're seeing the fruits of those labors especially in the young people of today and i think that's one of the things like especially thanks to the gyms, you know, that, that have come up, Tempest Academy and Visions and, and a lot of these spots have just given young people access to the knowledge that that's going to help them to the facilities that are going to help hone those skills and competitions and jams and meetups. They've all sort of painted a picture for what it could be like to be an athlete. And, um, you know, I love to talk about people like uh, Ellis Torhall and, uh, no, uh, Georgina, they're like unreal athletes at, at 16, they are doing things that are were unthinkable just a few years ago. And they're doing it with ease and a smile on their face. Cause this is what they've been doing for years. And they're, they're growing and literally like their bodies are going through puberty at a time when this is all they're doing. And so they're like crafted for perfection in the sport. And it's amazing to watch.
0: Yeah, it is. Yeah. I've been, I feel like i have I think I've been watching Alice since he was 11. Right. Yeah. And to see him at art of motion this year and be like, holy wow like this is crazy crazy the development that's yeah. happened it just his 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 submission for art of motion was insane right this giant yeah. double side flip gap i think was one of, a part of what he did this kid's 16 years old
1: yeah and i think you know we've, we've seen image and i'm i'm not trying to take uh, too much credit for this but i think you know that stuff like tempest online's really created a sort of format for people focusing on this stuff and if you look at um, twin Parkour, you know, the, uh, the Rudolph twins, like they put in videos, Elstor Hall, his video, like uh, Sorush, like a lot of these people are just essentially using those clips from the online competitions like Tempest Online and they're putting together yeah. these, these submission tapes that are just like, yeah, this is how we move now. It's like you see these like 15 second runs of people just doing the most insane things, things that would have been like one-off moves a couple years ago just in yeah. a line, like back to back to back to back. And then they're like, yeah, let me slap a couple of those together and look at this. Now I'm one of the best in the world, well-deserved.
0: It's definitely seeing some some quantum leaps in performance. So I was curious, so you started real early, right? And you 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 had some kind of communication with the French scene early on and then you were on the Madonna tour and Sebastian Foucault was on that tour as well.
1: Yeah, that was such an incredible opportunity. And I was, I mean, as an athlete, I was thoroughly unprepared for it. I think they had uh, gotten Levi on the tour because originally they had, they wanted uh, Oleg on it. Mm-hmm. Madonna's like an avid sort of pop culture fan and had seen Sebastian and got him involved and then wanted another person and saw Oleg's Russian climbing video and just couldn't, couldn't get him into the US. And yeah. so she'd been using some of her dancers to do um to do stuff and they just kept getting injured it was a really tough tour. The
0: yeah
1: the, i mean the physical stamina needed and the sort of dexterity in terms of what they were doing was really tough and she had just seen too many getting injured so they brought on another free runner who was levi and he was killing it um just That's doing just amazing
0: levi muenberg for those scoring in the audience
1: uh, uh, yes, you can, look yes. Him up. He, you can check out his videos from 10 years ago and you'll still be impressed now yeah. Um, and actually what he's doing now is fantastic. If you're interested in sustainable living and eco farming and stuff, it's also amazing, but very different. Um, but yeah. And he had, he had also had some tweaks it was like just a dangerous setup. One of the things is she didn't use air conditioning in her shows because for environmental reasons, but it was causing a lot of condensation on the floors. So it was very slippery and there was parts of it where you're we jumping off the stage into the audience. So it was, Kind of deadly. Um, so I showed up and actually was going to audition the first time and they ended up hiring Zinn, the urban ninja instead. Yeah, He's another guy with a famous yeah. uh, YouTube video, but he ended up going, getting the job for one day and then getting fired. I think it was hair or something, you know, it was like, <laughs> look, I don't know what it was. Um, and so I came back a couple of weeks later and actually got to audition got the gig and, and did i think like four weeks on the tour before i got let go and then they went overseas and brought on oleg um and it was hectic for me because they were asking me to do a lot of tricks that i wasn't totally comfortable with i was still learning how to i mean i was self-taught on all these yeah. flips and and so i was just sort of like going for it and hoping i could do it and i ended up hitting my head on a backflip which really messed with my mind and they just really wanted me to do it on some kind of sketchy setup but I think the rest of it, like being there with Sebastian, Levi, that's where I met Victor Lopez, uh, who was one of the founders of Tempest. And we just really got to talk about free running. I mean, it's actually where I talked to Sebastian about being more involved in the scene, because it was at a time when people were really arguing a lot about parkour and free running and what it meant and what it was. And I was like, look, people are essentially deciding for themselves. And you have such a strong personal philosophy around this. Like people will listen to you, like get that message out there. And I don't know if somebody was doing the same thing for David Bell, but he was not, he was not involved and had no interest in talking to people about what he felt at that time. Um, so Sebastian ended up sort of putting together a, a statement and getting it out there. And uh, it was, it was a really cool thing to see. I mean, I even remember <laughs> We, we we organized a jam in new york when we were out there and got a bunch of people to central park and had so much fun and i remember sebastian was actually supposed to go get like a scan of his wrist because he had like broken a bone in his wrist but he, he, he delayed it so that he could do the jam which was really cool so That's many funny. people came out but I, I think there was like one of the craziest things i would ever seen at the time he's giving this speech before he goes to the doctor and he's like everyone put your hands in like Remember, like we do this for love and this is like this is a way to express yourself and explore your environment. And there's no point in talking bullshit on the internet because that's not gonna help anyone and it's not gonna help you. And I was just, you know, I was really inspired at that moment. And I heard these kids just like making all this noise in the back. And I kind of took it on myself to be like, yo, guys, what's up? Like, come on, this is like you're gonna miss this moment that you're not gonna get again. Who knows the next time you're gonna have one of the founders of this this movement here and I, and I, and I just saw them fighting. And the one kid goes to the other, he's like, look, just admit it, man. You're a free runner. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, I'm not. I'm a tracer. Like I don't free runner He's like, no way, man. I was down at battery park. We saw you doing side flips. Just say you're a free runner. And the other kid punched him in the face. And I lost it, man. I was like, what is going on? I'm like, this is not this is not important. You're missing the point of you're missing the, the guy who who made up the word free running, mm-hmm. telling you that this is just online bullshit that's getting into your head and it and you're you're missing the chance to 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 grow here to learn this this lesson from some of the source itself because you're too busy arguing over what to call something. And, Yeah, I think that that really inspired me to say like that part doesn't matter it's good to know the history it's good to understand the differences or whatever but it's also not the most important thing and so I don't waste a lot of time trying to you know explain the differences to people I think it's become quite common for people to call themselves free runners and to say they're doing parkour and like at the same time like yes like there's more specific explanations and I Every time I do an art of motion, I have to explain those differences and that's fine. I'm happy to do it, but I don't really think that's the, the, the point. If anything, I wish it would just be more consistent so we could have less of these arguments.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've started to think of it. There's, I just think of parkour as a big container, right? And then there's also a smaller container within it, which could be like, you know, it's like the, the wide sense of parkour, which is playing around on obstacles and the narrow sense of parkour, which is, I guess whatever David Bell decides he wants it to be um, because it seemed yeah. to change. It was anti-competition. And then it was for the Olympics, but um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, these guys who founded it, uh, like there, it, it wasn't complete. It wasn't like a, it wasn't like they went to a patent office and described exactly what they were trying to do and had it all philosophically laid out because they, you know, spent years engineering it. Like they were just yeah. practicing and figuring things out and came up with different names. Um, but I do think there's a lot of profound stuff in those original practitioners, right? I've had Sebastian on the show and you who know, talked about how he had that broken wrist for six months on the Madonna tour, I think. Yeah, it was brutal. But, and I'm, I was, It's interesting to hear your, your, your history with that because I, I think I remember that you were somewhat active on the APK Forum back then. And I think you like pretty much never weighed into discussions around free running versus parkour. You just sailed right past that stuff. Um, it's I just find it like such a distraction from so many
1: other things which are so much more valuable.
0: Yeah,
1: I think there's there's a lot that can be discussed and I do think that you know debate can be healthy and I think there's there, you know, I think when we had the pro takeover in, in L.A it was something that came up, but we we decided to do was frame the conversation around what is best for like sort of everyone? Like, how should we talk about this? Not like, what is the definition? Do we need to like put a stamp on it? It was like, how do we all decide to get behind this together as professional athletes around the world, as business owners and as sort sort of the people pushing this culture forward, what are we gonna do? And there was definitely things on both sides. I do think it was pretty clear that nobody was going around calling themselves trousseurs anymore. So it was like very easy to be like, okay, we're just going to be free runners from now on. Um, and I think for me, it's like, there is just more productive things we can do with our time than, than, than continue to do something which only ends up dividing us. You know, there's, mm-hmm. it's a much bigger scene now, but it's not so big that we can really afford to just be shaving off segments of who does what it's like, I want to embrace more people because we can all work together on so many of these things. Um, and if we keep opening it up wider and wider, then we're just going to end up under a really big umbrella, like gymnastics, which I definitely don't want.
0: Yeah. I remember, I mean, I was like part of the purist, right? Like I didn't flip for two years, even though I came from a gymnastics background. Um, and I remember, uh, like the first NAPC, Jesse Lafleur came, like you know, the free runnerist of the free runners, right? Um, and he just killed it in the speed round, and he killed it in a unique way. He had a different vision, and I was like, okay, well, you know, there's obviously a point at which you're mostly just training acrobatics for acrobatic purposes, but there's a lot of crossover here, and um, there's a lot of people who who uh, who can hang in both in both areas, right? Like Nate Weston, one of my former students, who's one of your teammates, right? He came out and ran a speed round with us, and just crushed everybody at the local scene. Yeah. Right. So totally. I think there's a lot of crossover um, in those skill sets, and, and it's totally. I, I don't see any reason why people shouldn't play with both, um, and and or or that they need to conceive of them as distinctly different. Right. It's kind of just different flavors of the same. Same thing. Yeah, play.
1: and and I, I think from like a very fundamental standpoint, like I, I grew up wrestling. I was like mm-hmm. a state state finalist. And like, we spent so long drilling all these different techniques and working on so many different like conditioning and, and exercise and everything, all this kind of training for this wide variety. things. And like most of wrestling, it's just like two people holding onto each other, just kind of pushing and pulling like back and forth. And then there's like a fraction of a second where a move happens and then you're in another position just pushing and pulling. Yeah. And it's like you you build out sort of this arsenal of, of movement, this understanding that that's more all encompassing so that in the end you can basically use one small part of it. And if you're trying to train like purist parkour, like A to B, like that's great. You're probably going to be most effective if you just spend all your time running. (laughs) So, (laughs) so it's like, if you really want to focus on that's fine, but it's like learning all the other skills, like you're saying is sort of like advancing your eyes. It's building out your body awareness. It's helping. I mean, all of the best, training i've done like ukemi training like for falling the best stuff comes from free running oh yeah like saving yourself it's all that it's like built from body awareness when you're in a position that is not like knees over toes heads forward like everything like perfect it's like when you're in a weird awkward spot and you're like all of a sudden like oh if i just naturally react your body knows what to do and that's only because of all this extra training so i agree it's it's best to do the most variety and that kind of stuff
0: Yeah. That was a funny thing on the forums. The arguments about what pure parkour should look like. Yeah, It's actually really environmental specific. One thing I'm in really into right now is canyoning. And so you, Mm. you go into these canyons, you drop down, you know, using rappel down a waterfall and then you try to get down the canyon. Right. So a lot of people just hike, but I like to run, right. I like to try to get down the canyon as fast as possible. And, and we'll be going fast going into the canyon because we only have so much time. And it's like, well, there's lots of step faults, right? Um, yeah, but it turns out that like being able to slide well and being able to transition quickly to like a crab walk position and out of a crab walk position, super relevant in those types of environments. It's like slopes or something that people aren't familiar with. Yeah. Like wet slopes and diffuse dirt. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't know if you've read this book, uh, but there's a famous old book called the night climbers of Cambridge.
0: It's I haven't read that book. I've heard about it. Yeah.
1: It's if for it, I'm sure a lot of your listeners would probably be fascinated by it. It's mm-hmm. really cool story about one of the earliest sort of climbing groups that was based in Cambridge, and they climbed the school, and they got really interesting history it's a whole story that you could probably do an entire podcast on. But one of the big divisions in their, their group was like the ones who thought you should only use your body versus ones that said, well, you can't go everywhere with only your body. You need ropes to access certain areas. So is it about what you can do with your body or about being able to go wherever you want to go? And Mm -hmm. those are two different perspectives on the same sort of activity, but with different goals in mind. One is like, yes, we're going to use ropes because I want to be able to go anywhere. And that's why I started this in the first place. The other one's like, well, I did this to see what I was capable of. So I'm only use my body. And yeah. they also had ones that were like, you have to do this only at night. And ones that said you only could do it after two beers. So they have a <laughs> lot of different perspectives on it, but but no one is correct. You know, we're just, this is like a made up game that we all play. And it's it's up to you to decide how you want to play this game and what the rules are for yourself until you want to play with others, I guess.
0: Yeah. So I wanted to, to, to kind of shift a little bit and, and focus on creativity. Cause I think that's one of your your big areas of interest. Like I remember you approached me and wanted to, to talk about creativity at the uh, the parkour in the back in the day. And yeah. I think the way that you've crafted your career through using parkour is actually something that um, a lot of young people coming up could learn from, right? In the, in the scene is like, how do you actually make a career out of this? Cause it's not easy. Um, and I think your perspective on creativity is actually important. So let's start with creativity within parkour, right? How do you approach cultivating your creativity and how did you How do you develop that mindset? Um, Because you had a very unique approach to movement by the time that I encountered you. You were kind of moving in a way that was very different from other people on the scene.
1: Um, Well, it's interesting you talk about having a career in in BART4 and creativity, because I think one of my earliest sort of motivators for creativity was because I was doing jobs, like performance jobs. Um, and oftentimes I was partnered with my good friend, Levi Muenberg, who has some of the cleanest, strongest, most acrobatic movements in the sport at the time. And there was no way that I was able to do what he was doing. So I knew that I needed to do something different. And so for me, it was always looking at the space I was in and saying, okay, well, what can I do here that nobody else would think of doing? So sometimes that meant finding like a unique piece or space of a structure or an environment Um, Or in some cases, it meant thinking about myself on the other side of things, which is like the audience perspective. And like, what could I do if I wasn't just thinking about myself, but I was thinking about my relationship to an audience member. And I think that's when it started to me to become more of a performance art as opposed to just self-expressive art. Because when I was first starting, it was just like, what can I do with my body? And over the years, I definitely played with that a lot, especially actually in my later years, Um, when I was more physically I would say behind where a lot of the other athletes were but I still wanted to participate at an elite level I really started to play just with what I could do with my body that felt comfortable and that got me into some more interesting shapes and motions but early on in my career it was very much performance based it was how do I create a moment for somebody that has either something unexpected or exciting or dramatic that they wouldn't believe so I think I started to involve their sort of experience of seeing it and revealing something, like coming from a place that isn't expected, or utilizing a part of the environment that that nobody else would look for. That's why I started to really like very tiny underbars, sort of that Jackie Chan style, mm. or even looking, you know, at, at some sort of like uh, like Buster Keaton, sort of like like fake outs, stuff that yeah. people like Pasha ended up, you know, sort of making into his signature and, and has obviously been super successful. Um, and also looking at other cultures like breakdancing and b-boy culture, which I think really had a lot to do with creating excitement for a crowd. Um, and it, it just, for me, kind of built along this this path. Like, and as videos became a bigger part of the sport with, with the onset of YouTube, I think I recognized that it wasn't just the most talented people that made the most interesting videos. And eventually that led me into storytelling, which I think was one of the most exciting parts for me. And that's where stuff like Frosty Saints Day came from. Mm -hmm. I was like getting very interested in props and the different ways that we could interact with stuff. I mean, I started off just like messing with my hat and sunglasses. And that was Mm -hmm. something I'd been doing in Chicago a lot at the time. And And then in DC, I really started to play around with it. I mean, I had also some like kind of dark times in DC where I was like kind of depressed and like, just like I hated what I was doing. And so I wanted to do different things. I remember we shot a video. Skipper came up with the idea to do the first 3D video. It was like blue and red 3D vision, like old school. But I was just like, I'm going to do this whole section in handcuffs just because like I thought it was kind of funny, but also like created like a different vibe. It was like a new challenge for me. Um, or like this i'm going to just see what i can do with a hat like i'd seen break dancers doing stuff with hats i'm gonna try stuff with a hat um and by the time i got to frosty saves the day i was living out in california and i was sort of thinking of like well this is like why aren't we seeing people integrating these things the way i saw like yeah like jack people like jackie chan like telling a story through this this movement and i remember i had this idea about using a belt and doing a devil drop you know like an inward side Mm -hmm. flip off of the wall with the belt and i was just like I'd, i'd climb stuff with it i'd seen like you know, like people going up palm trees and I was like it's so there but I was like why would I have this and so from there I was like oh well maybe I need to take somebody's belt and it doesn't make I don't want to take my belt because yeah. my pants will fall off and I was like oh somebody else's pants should fall off <laughs> like, well, whose pants it's kind of mean to take someone's pants and like I want to be like a superhero and I, that's where I got this idea to like oh I'm going to take someone's pants off that's a bad guy mm-hmm. and that's going to like sort of save the day and so I, I had that idea and from there I was just like okay how else can like a free runner save the day because we would always like I mean I'm sure you had moments where you wanted to don't like Batman or something you mm-hmm. like a superhero I'm out here like I could be like a a real life hero somehow. And so it was it's for me started off as a lot of little things. I was like, oh well maybe I can like clean the clothes up off the floor or like catch like this muffin before it gets dirty or like help somebody recycle when they were going to throw something in the garbage or save this goldfish off the top of the car. Like it was like it didn't have to be like all of these game changing like oh I'm going to like save the day, like the world's gonna end. It's like, oh there's a lot of ways that you can be a real life hero. And um, that project for me was just a really fun way to explore how you can be creative in multiple ways. And it's not just about like who can, who can come up with a new trick which no one has done before, but also like what can you do with those tricks? And yeah. how can they be more than just a gimmick or a gag?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's only there is some kind of limit to how many flips and twists you can do or how many orientations of flips or twists, though we seem to keep breaking the limit. Um, but there's always only a few people who are able to be the people pushing that edge. And um, and there's lots of other edges to push, right? I love Louis yeah. West's lateral creativity, right? Okay. You don't have to go from a backflip to a double backflip or a full twist. Like how many variations of the backflip can you create that that offer some opportunity for fun, you know, personally or for some expression, right? um yeah I, well, there's a few things i want to dig into there one so you had a background as a wrestler did you also have a track and field background yeah i did um hurdles long jump and uh, hundred meter relay because you're talking about and like if i look at your style i would say like you're you're not the most advanced acrobatic athlete right your your style is this flow and this connection and this humor that you brought to it and i was thinking back so for the audience who, who's not aware, Frosty was a competitor on a show called uh, Jump City, Seattle. And I was one of the judges. I was behind the scene on that show. And you you kind of dominated that show, especially after Levi broke his wrist. Um, and I think there was a lot. Well, I actually think you've, you've, you've kind of attracted a little bit of hate over the years for a variety of reasons. Oh, yeah. Um, um,
1: <laughs> somewhat purposefully.
0: Somewhat purposefully. Pers- uh... Well, I think it's quite interesting because it, it plays on some of these themes, right? I mean, part of your, your creativity is the persona of Frosty, right? And I think it's amazing to me how many people don't get the joke. Because to <laughs> me, it's really obvious.
1: Um, yeah, but we've also spent a good amount of time hanging out together. Yeah, and yeah. I think a lot of people miss it. And I think, you know, I remember meeting Tim Sheep for the first time when we did Ninja Warrior together. And he was just blown away because he was like, oh, I thought you were uh, kind of a dick, man. Like, <laughs> you know, and it's like. It's like it's like yeah. Well, I also know like we're trying to get on TV, and I have a reality TV background. So I yeah. was like, I recognized from my time doing uh, shows like Survivor that if everybody is there like saying like oh I just want to be best friends with everyone, then it's not going to be very exciting. And I also believe in healthy competition and and in getting people riled up because it creates more excitement and. We are all friends at the end of the day, and even as I started getting uh, like more opportunities to get behind the mic and, and talk about people, I use this opportunity to kind of talk shit about my friends because yeah. it, it, it does like create a, a bigger world around all of this. Um,
0: You've added yeah, some yeah, a lot of people fun, like
1: me. It's okay. Fun
0: fun elements of trolling to the uh, <laughs> the being behind the mic. I remember you calling a uh, Mish talking about Mish eight feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> um
1: 385 pounds eight feet <laughs> <your tall. must.
0: laughs>
1: we we started a rumor about niche that he ate a guy once <laughs> and, and, and the, the the trick to this and like maybe i'm ruining it for some people but I, i'm sure a lot of people, you know, have heard like a little bit is you always like start this rumor which is somewhat based on truth but also like you, you work it down so you'd be like oh yeah well there's a rumor that he ate a guy And people would be like, oh, that's dumb. Like, It was like, well, not the whole thing, just like a little piece of it. (laughs) They got in a fight and he stuck his hand in his face. And so he he like bit a little piece of his finger off. And like, we don't know that he swallowed it, but nobody found the piece, you know? And (laughs) so then for like years, there was like a little rumor going around that Misha had ate a guy once. (laughs) It's just, it's-
0: It's amazing. Well, I mean, kids are impressionable, right? Like (laughs) we started a rumor at at Parco Visions once that I had slapped somebody and killed them. And like, totally, it was a joke, like just something that was like a meme that we played out for a day. And like a year later, like I'd still hear kids like whispering about it, <laughs> guy to death once. <laughs> so open hand. So what I was remembering, like, you know, what was interesting about jump city? Well, there was a couple things that was interesting for me watching you as an athlete at jump city. So in the, in the style rounds. It was like you had a cheat code because you were the only person who got the the value that flow was being put to in the in, in the in the criteria, right? It was like I saw people getting frustrated because they'd be trying to throw this huge trick and then get smashed down. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, well, it was, like the the criteria were put before you. Flow was high on it. And nobody seemed to know how to create a linked line besides you. And then I think no soul really figured it out or Brian Rosca figured it out towards the end. Yeah. But definitely uh, in
1: time for that sudden death finals match. Yeah. <laughs> we definitely worked it out there and I, I did, I messed it up, but uh, yeah, I mean, to me, it, it was really obvious. I looked at the scoring criteria and I said, this is the only way that I'm going to be, able, I'm not going to like max out difficulty. And it's not as heavily weighted as flow and execution. If those two are the highest anyway, I can definitely get creativity and I also looked at the environments we were in and Seattle, as you know, there's a lot of wetness, there's a lot of rain and, and the sets we were on, there was a lot of like new things being built. So it wasn't always like ideal. And I was like, if I risk the biscuit, on like trying to go for my biggest tricks. They're already not going to be as high level difficulty as like Levi or Dylan Baker, these other dudes that are willing to go. Yeah. Yeah. Spider is like, I mean, he's doing nuts stuff, stuff that's still hard to this day. And I was like, okay, well, this to me seems like an obvious choice. And I'm going to just basically do what I would do if this was a, a performance and just make sure everything's linked. And if I got lost, I would just keep doing the lowest level difficulty moves and link them until I got myself right back on track. And uh, it was like a Tony Hawk's pro skater run where you sort of like do little things and then hit the manual in between mm-hmm. and it keeps your score going.
0: Yeah. And
1: I just kept doing it and doing it and doing it. And, and I kept thinking like, okay, the first time it worked and I got a good score and I was like, oh, thank God. Like I'm, I've got I've got a chance here, but I figured everyone was gonna catch on and start doing it. But I think, I don't know if they were just caught in the this camera cycle where they're like, I've got to do my biggest things. Like for me, it was like, oh, well, I'm gonna look good because I'm giving them of funny interviews mm-hmm. and i'm and i'm scoring well so they're going to be the ones talking about how great i am like i don't need to yeah. do that I, I, like we're, i'm sharing that job with brady romberg like we can uh we can just we can just do our best and if our team does well then we're going to be in a good place and we had a great speed team um and we just needed to help on the freestyle side so i was like I'm, I'm gonna step up as much as i can there
0: yeah so for some reason i'm just remembering albert right who was incredible he was so high level in the acrobatics at that point and we had this rickety like swing setup at freeway park yeah. right oh. on wet grass and albert goes oh. for this like i think it was like uh a... was a back cliche to a wall flip
1: off of it yeah it's like oh yeah sketchy. Thing, so sketchy i
0: mean he's swinging on it he has to know that it's not that solid right and so he lands on you know like splats on the ground And I'm like, dude, this guy is, is an insane stud, but like, I can't, I can't score that high.
1: Yeah. Right. Totally.
0: Um, And then
1: I, I mean, I don't disagree with this, this scoring method. I think there is benefit to encouraging people to go for hard things, but I do think it's most exciting when they land it.
0: Yeah. Well also, like you said, the environment, right? Like, if we had a better designed, safer environment, then it might make sense to have a score set that that optimized for difficulty a little bit more, right? But in that particular environment, the incentivization, yeah, made sense. So, but the other thing that I was thinking about in reference to that is, so you, you were killing it in the speed as well, especially with the stuff that wasn't as high, right? But like, I remember you on top of that building hurtling over the... um over the obstacles right yeah I'd kind of gotten into hurdles already at that point but that definitely like lit the fire under me to be like hurdles are are awesome and everyone in parkour should understand hurdles Um,
1: I think I remember having a conversation with you about it after that yeah it's I mean it made sense to me I was like these things are so low I've been hurdling for years like why would I bother to like do a parkour move here when I can just run over this (laughs) it just seemed really obvious to me (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> what I remember, though, was that the roof was slanted on both sides. So you were landing on a relatively narrow thing as you were hurtling. So it was like it was a risky strategy, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, that, it, everything on that had a little bit of risk involved yeah. to it. But I mean, I think I, I knew what I was good at and what I could do. And I was like, I'm going to do those things. And even like you said, like there was a height thing in, um, I remember at one of the plazas we were like running on these beams or like yep. in the alley when there's a big high beam. And I was just told Travis, I was like, you're doing it. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'll, I could do it, but it's not going to be as fast as if you do it. And I think he was getting pissed cause I just kept taking anything that had sprinting lines in it. I was like, yep. that's, I'm doing it. Like it's mine. But mm. I also was like, look, I'm not, I'm not here to like, just like, be super friendly. It sounds like a reality. To me. I'm not here to make friends. Um, <laughs> no, I was like, we're here to compete, and I know that I'm faster than you on a on a straightaway. So any place with sprinting, like I'm going to take it. And it, and I know that you're faster than me at heights. So you're going to do them, even though I am keep making you do the heights and the climb ups. That's what you're good at, and you're better than me, and you're better than Skipper. So that's what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. And poor sense. Jeremy.
1: We just didn't let him do anything.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah Jeremy was that was a hard time, um, but. But yeah, so you you had extremes like advantages in speed and power. Like I remember at NAPC uh, in 2013 you still had one of the biggest standing broad jumps of any of the athletes.
1: Yeah. I mean, I had some really impressive thighs. thighs <laughs> whatever. I mean, you have to tell me what muscles make me jump real good, but yeah,
0: glutes. I have those uh, glutes. I have glutes and big feet. Big feet. So, I'm just interesting because like you're describing feeling like you're you weren't the most talented athlete but you had certain physical gifts that were really uncommon at that point um how do you kind of see that that as we reach the edge like how you find those things that that are your strengths versus other people's strengths right like wh- why do you think that it is that you you had so much ability with speed but didn't have the confidence at height that say dylan had or, or travis had or or the the the, the ability to sort of organize acrobatics the way lead by um, hat
1: I mean I think what's true about this is true about anything like where your attention goes that's where your your energy is going to flow you know like I knew what I liked to do and it was things that I was good at and so I put energy into those things and I think if I was focusing on being the most well-rounded athlete or the most diversely talented human being I might have had different goals but I was honestly I was mostly interested in being a professional athlete in a sport that I loved and mm-hmm. to do that I knew it was going to take certain things and you're not going to be a legit pro athlete if you're just really good at a lot of things yeah. you're going to be a pro athlete if you can do amazing things even if it's only one thing if it's enough to get the attention that you need the support that you need being a pro athlete is is not about the people that are just the most dedicated it's about the people that are professional and you know you look at um like dom tomato you know Mm -hmm. he is not gonna win a lot of speed or freestyle competitions but he is one of the most recognizable dominant athletes in the sport right now because he figured out what he's good at and he does it like crazy and he he keeps working on those things and he's evolving the sport around those aspects and he keeps yes increasing his skills doing various things but it's not I don't think I'm ever going to see him win art of motion I don't think he's going to come out on top of any speed comps but you can't deny that he is an incredible athlete doing amazing things and it's the same thing Pasha did yeah. Pasha is like really good at, at at some specific things if you ask him to run a speed course he's not going to win he can he can do a broad jump, but it's not gonna be very far. And it was never gonna be that far, but he has something special and he kept building that up and and and, and building it and growing with it and changing it. And now like, you know, you saw a pinball, it's like this crazy project, which only he could do. Nobody yeah. else in the world could have utilized that 45 degree angle. 20 meter wall the way that he did. And that's the benefit of being a really talented individual. And he was able to bring his individuality and, and combine it with his creativity and his physical gifts, all of those things and do something really special. And that's what attracted Red Bull. It's why they invested a million pounds into making this project happen, because they see something special and they want to bring that forward. And I think that we spend a lot of time as people seeing what other people are doing well and trying to say, like, oh, can I do that? Can I do this? And it's honestly more often than not, more important, like with what can I do well? What can I bring? What is like, what is missing from the world that I can help shine a light on or bring, bring out? And and when you can find those things in yourself, it's you can uh, do incredible
0: stuff. It's what uh, reminds me of that Bruce Lee quote, right? You know, you know, absorb what is useful, discard what is useless. Uh, you know, add something that's uniquely your own. I think as we like progress as athletes, a lot of the sustainability and the continued interest comes from that, um, adding what is uniquely your own. Like for me, it's been trees. Right. And now it's canyons. Right. Um, it's like, this is, this is, these are unexplored edges. Right. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah. That's a, that a good answer. I think it's fascinating to watch what's happening with Dom because he's so much better at the thing that he does than anybody else. Like he's, I would say he's like an order of magnet. It's, it's, it's incomparable, right? Like nobody else, nobody else is going to look at the things that he's trying to do right now at all.
1: But they see them now. So next week he may not be the best anymore because there is literally a million kids watching him do what he does every day. And as soon as they see it then that that's open, the light is on for them. Yeah. And, and so now it's like next week, you know, who's, who's going to be doing it we don't know but uh i think you know once we saw somebody do a flip precision to a rail how many flip precisions to rails have we seen now you know yeah. like we saw somebody do a kong gainer now we're seeing kong double gainers or i saw uh, uh yeah i saw a uh, uh you know a wall down monkey kong gainer like it's yeah. like People are, are going to take whatever they see and, and it's, it's proven that when we can absorb from other people that something is possible, then it opens up you know, literal like neural pathways for us that we can start seeing, well, how could I do this? Or what could I do in this? Or maybe I can't do that, but what about this? And, you know, we're, yeah. we're all growing together.
0: It's kind of a, an interesting idea to think that like that's kind of one of the most lasting impacts you can have on a sport is not necessarily to be the best. But to be the guy who who sets some edge, who redefines what the territory is, like you said with Dom, like it'd be hard to argue that Dom is the best athlete, parkour athlete in the world in any in any direction other than the thing that he does, which is giant flips, right? Giant drops. Yeah. Um, you know, it still drives me crazy that this climb ups look <laughs> look yeah. sloppy, right? You're like, yeah. How, 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 how are you doing that and you can't clean up your climb up? Right. Cause he's obviously physically strong enough, but he's just not he's yeah. just not interested in putting the time into that, right? And technically mm-hmm. grooving it in. He's just gonna go do his thing. But doing his thing, he's opened a path. Like there's all these things that are completely unimaginable that now are imaginable to millions of kids. Um, yeah,
1: absolutely. And I think, you know, we see like people develop their bodies for specific things. Like I wouldn't ask an ultra marathon runner to, to do a hundred meter dash because um, yeah. they're not built for it. But I do think it's cool when I see a marathon runner and a, and a bodybuilder come to a free running class and both work on the same stuff and they come up with different ways to do it. They come up with different parts of it that they're good at. One is really good at one thing, the other one's good at something else. And we see how coming from different angles and different backgrounds, it it really starts to bring something new to everything we're we're doing. And, uh, And for me, like, I think one of the most exciting things about free running right now is not the athletic side. It's what's going on in the culture around it. You know, we're seeing people like Storer, who are not the best physically at anything, being the biggest name in the sport as they progress what it means to have like parkour culture. I mean, they're working with Michael Bay and they're making like, you know, million million dollar projects in a video game. And it's, it's amazing to see. I look at people like, uh, like you or Jimmy the giant that are out there making like auxiliary content to the sport, like stuff that helps like raise it up and explore different areas of it. Move mag. um, And even the the companies like we were talking about at the beginning that are making shoes now, uh, Tempest and Farang and, and store all coming out with their own shoes. Like, yes, these shoes are, it's still expensive. They're still not perfect. It's still hard because it's really tough to make a shoe, yeah. but it's the start of getting something which actually is the best shoe for the, the sport because um, it's made by the people that, that do it. And the more that it happens, the more we support this, community the bigger the culture will get and the more we're going to see these people going to the edges of different things whether it's physically whether it's mental game whether you know like whether it's 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 the 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 cultural aspects of it it's just going to keep pushing and uh, I think that's why I'm excited to see more stuff like this happening it was a big shift I think when we started to see people that were really good coaches that weren't great athletes Mm -hmm. and that to me was a big step for the sport because it, it, it inspired a lot of people to start opening training facilities or classes or meetups where the focus was helping others, not just helping themselves. Mm -hmm. And I'm very grateful for that wave that we had that continues to grow because we're seeing the benefits of it in a lot of these young athletes coming out of Sweden and the U S and Japan that are just unbelievably talented. And it's because of the efforts of people who are not the most physically gifted necessarily, but are the most inspired to help others.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it has been a fascinating ride to watch the community grow and all the different ways that it can grow. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. It seems to me like you, you made a decision to, to have a career in parkour and fairly early on, you started to, to think about what the post-performance side of that looked like. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: It seemed like you, Yeah, and I'm curious how you like, How how did that happen? Because I don't think a lot of athletes are, are really making that step of saying, I'm good enough now that I can get jobs, right? But that's probably not going to be around forever. How am I going to leverage these connections now in order to do something that's interesting to me going forward?
1: Um, well, well, I know that it, I mean, the place where it started was me being a kid in math class, like not paying attention to math, being like, I'm not going to do anything math related in my life and saying like, right now I'm just dreaming about going outside and practicing doing aerials because I was like, almost got my aerial down, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was like, so stoked on that I was like oh someday like I'm gonna like do all these things I'm gonna live in a house where there's like a bunch of other parkour guys and we're gonna have like a foam pit in the middle of it or no uh, jumping in it. or like someday I'm gonna go to a competition and it's gonna be like our team versus like the UK team or like someday I'm gonna like be an old guy like on the mic being like back in my day we conged uphill both ways to the training academy you know and and it's just that all of those things started happening sooner than I anticipated. And simultaneously, I think my own mortality and physical capabilities got brought into light as I started to have some of my first serious injuries. Um, my main one was for my back. When I was still living in DC, I did, um, I did Ninja Warrior the first time because um, my, my girlfriend at the time lived in Santa Monica. So I was like, oh, I'll get out to the Santa Monica and try out for Ninja Warrior. I'll get to see her and take some time off. Um, and I qualified for the finals. It was amazing. I was like superstar on the show already because I talked so much trash and like yeah. had like set a record for qualifying time. So I was like, Oh, I'm gonna be a star there. It's gonna be awesome. Then I came back to DC and I was shooting a video with the, the team and I I just blew out my back and it was the worst injury I'd ever had. And here I was, this young dude, what I thought was like at the peak of my career, just being like, oh man, I'm busted. Like I can't even, like, I like fell down in the bathroom and I couldn't get up. I was just had to lay on the floor. I didn't have a phone there. I didn't have anything Do no one was home. So I was just like, this is terrible. And at the time I was already very interested in the business side of things. I think I had that sort of mindset since I was early in school, like not even when I was, before I was even in high school, I was already like interested in, in business and, and what we were capable of and. So when I joined up with Mark, part of the sort of caveat to me getting involved with APK was that I could help run things from the marketing side and was nice. helping to build it even as a, a young kid. It, like I, I saw the, the potential of what it could be. Um, so helping with the transition of some of the clothes they were doing to working with some actual artists to design some things as opposed to just saying things which said parkour, even though those sold the most. Um, but I think I was like, okay, well, I'm interested in, in the bigger world of this. What can I do to help build this up? And I think that, that sort of childhood dream of like wanting to be a voice for the sport really stood out. And um, I saw competition starting to come together. I saw Art of Motion start to happen. And Travis Wong, who's a, a good friend of mine now, at the time I was like, this dude, he's like not even in the sport and he's like mm-hmm. starting to do this. But there was a pushback from Mark about being involved with Red Bull at the time. Um, and so I had kind of battled back and forth with how to get involved. Um, but once I moved to California, I was sort of like over it. And I was like, I, I think I wanna get involved. So I took uh, a job and actually was very grateful. My wife and her sister um, helped me talk to Victor Lopez from Tempest. And he actually sponsored me going out to um, Sweden for the first Air Whip Challenge where they had like a real live stream um, Cause they had had one guy in the past who had done it. I think he got kind of drunk or something. They were just like partying. And so they're like, okay, we want someone who'll take it seriously. We can't pay. We can't do any of that stuff. Yeah. And I was like, put me out there let me show how it can be done. And I took that, that job and I just gave it like everything I had. Like I, I studied everything. I was on the course every day. I talked to every athlete. I just was like, somebody needs to take this seriously. And from there, I, I, I got to t- spend some time with Nico um, Wojcik. He's now Nico Martel um, at uh, at Airwhip because he was a judge there. And he's the sports director for Red Bar and Emotion. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know, if you ever need somebody to get involved like do this, blah, blah, blah. But at the time, Travis Wong had the job as the MC, and they had their, their hosting team. It was all set. And then thank God for Michael Bay, because they did another Transformers movie and they offered Travis Wong a stunt job, which pays significantly more than hosting jobs. And Mm -hmm. he was already committed to it. So I got fortunate again, because he actually bought my ticket to cover for him at Red Bull Art of Motion uh, Mm -hmm. to be the live MC. And so I took that job at the last minute. I remember getting the call from Nico, just be like, hey, what do you want to do next week? (laughs) You want to come to Greece? And, uh, yeah, so I did a couple years of that and I just kept pushing that. Like, I was like, look, I think I'm really good at this job, but I would be even better in commentary Mm -hmm. and you guys would be really lucky to have me do this because I'm the best in this sport at this, which I guess was true, but also was completely unproven, um, at the time. But I just decided that moment, like, I'm going to do this, like, I'm going to be the best at this because nobody else is doing a good enough job to really talk about this from a sports side. And doing it for Art of Motion, and then subsequently for NAPC, I think was a huge shift in, for me in the sport, because I said I saw, especially talking with the guys from uh, Origins, you know, Renee and, yeah. and Tom, about the, the actual sport itself and what was happening from an athletic standpoint. I was like, this should be treated as an Olympic sport because of the level of difficulty, because of the, 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 ab- the abilities of the athletes, because of the training that goes into this, because of everything that you don't see during a competition, during a video, what what's going into each of these things? Somebody needs to give a voice to these athletes, to the sport, to this this energy that's pouring into this. And so I just did everything I could to to really pay tribute to everything that was going on behind the scenes, and to make it as fun and professional as it, it could be, and to take it as seriously as was it deserved. And um, yeah, I mean, it's been an amazing ride from there because. You know, we've now seen years of competitions where they've subsequently gotten better every single year. The quality, the broadcast, um, not just in Red Art of Motion, but at APC, I mean, Air Whip until it recently ended. Um, Apex. Yes, Apex was, was a fantastic one. I, I know that we've had some 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 back and forth with uh, some of the other competitions that are coming. and. You know, I turned down the FIG competitions because they asked me to come out and do it. And I I really just feel like what we are building from a grassroots level and through partnerships that are really strong, like the partnership that we've developed with Red Bull, Mm -hmm. where the actual athletes and the sport have control over what's going on. I think that's where this sport needs to grow from and not from this other direction. Yes. And, and I feel really strongly about it and I may have, you know, screwed myself out of a chance to host the Olympics in 2024 or 2028 or whenever it happens, or maybe I did the right thing, but I know that for me, I couldn't make any other choice. I, I I really felt like to, to stand true to what I believe in, I wasn't going to support an event that I don't support. And I, you know, I have no problem with any of the athletes that went and did it. I think that there's not enough, support for professional athletes right now there are the level of training and effort and energy and personal resources that go into being an elite athlete at that level, they, they deserve opportunities to show off what they do and to be rewarded for it. I just really hate that the people that are doing it right now aren't, uh, don't, in my opinion, have the best intentions in mind for the, the sport. So I, I hope to find more ways to support grassroots competition or programs and events like Red Bull Art of Motion, um, I'm really excited to see more projects like what we did with human pinball and also with, with, uh, stuff that, that Tempest has been doing in terms of like online competitions and, and providing free access to, to a, a global community, um, to, to really get recognized for what they're doing. I think I look at what's going on in Japan and especially in the middle East in terms of recognizing the skill level out there. I mean, yeah. I had no idea how good, you know, on Iraq, you know, like, all of these places just have these athletes that are insane and they are just doing amazing, amazing stuff. And they're finally getting a chance to have the light shined on them. And, and it's, it's up to us as a community to help build that that culture up around what's, what's going on in, in the sport and the people that are doing it.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. I, uh, I, I agree. You know, if we can, if we can support the grassroots and what people like Renee and Tom and Ryan and, um, the guys at air whip have done, uh, that's a much healthier future for, for the sport. I wanted to ask you about, um, your performance retirement, right? You put out a video, I think it was, I was never here, um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, never here. Yeah. Never here. And and it was kind of like, you know, so basically you're, you're done as a performance athlete. And I'm, I'm curious what, what your relationship with personally with the discipline looks like kind of after that, are you still training regularly, pushing things? Or are you, do like you do other things with your body and kind of not focus on parkour like how is that how has that changed?
1: Um, well I'm obviously still very involved in the sport. I'm still hosting events, doing commentary for uh, our emotion and, and really anybody that I think is doing good quality events. Um, I'm also yeah like I, I just got a chance to be movement director for this this Pasha's um, yeah. pinball project which was an incredible opportunity. I've had the chance to be choreographer for a bunch of different cool projects. Uh, this um, Ringling Brothers last circus they did, I was I, I did choreography for it. For some fashion shows for Nike and Nickelodeon, like just kind of like in finding more ways to to use this this experience to to help build something, especially from a creative artistic standpoint. Um, and then obviously still involved with Tempest and everything we're doing here on the West Coast um, and Texas. Um, But I think from my personal standpoint, I was ready to switch how I treated myself, even though for the most part, I had already stopped competing a long time ago. Um, I wasn't doing a lot of the elite level stuff. Actually, almost 100% of that footage had been shot two years earlier. Um, It was stuff for another project we had done for the team that had never come out. And I got actually not even all of my footage. I'm actually a little sad about a couple of the lines that I didn't get the footage of, but it was just lost on a hard drive. And so Mm -hmm. I I found that and I just moved to New York with my wife for a year um, to work on another project. And uh, I started tinkering with the video. I'd been really inspired by Rodney Mullen's um, like 50 year old birthday video he did with, um, I think it was Vanity Fair or something. It it was like a really unique project, just black and white. And he's on this, the camera spinning around him. And I just remember like thinking like, okay, well, I want to share this with people, but I want to create something that's reflective of like the person I am now that that feels like where I think the sport go and I remember when I first started experimenting with the editing process and with, with putting together the lines in a way that to me was less about what you saw and more about what it felt like to, to be there. Um, and I know that like this sport is going to continue to grow and it will evolve so far past any of the input that I had. Um, and that was a little hard for me, you know, there was always a part of me that was like, Oh, I want to be like an icon or a legend or like, I want to be like remembered forever for the things that I did. And, who knows what's going to happen in the future, you know, and years down the road, people, they could, they could never move again. We could get rocket boots implanted in our feet and everyone's going to forget because they can just fly and they, and they can, they don't need to jump anymore because they fly and, and that's going to be amazing. Um, but I'll always know what happened and I'll always remember these experiences that I've had and the people I shared it with and the places I've gone and the things that I've seen. So even if someday it it seems like I was never here, I was, and it was amazing.
0: Mm -hmm. So do you, do you train parkour at all now or do other physical stuff or kind of?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I can't help myself. I actually have a lot more fun now than I think in my last few years when I was still like acting as a professional athlete. Cause I was still doing uh, like commercial stunt work and some limited like performance stuff, but mostly I was just trying to keep my skills honed. And now when I go out to train, it's whatever I feel like training. And it's a lot of cross training too, because I got really into paddle boarding and kayaking, because I'm here in Southern California where it's gorgeous. I do a lot of bike riding, which is nice for my knees and back. And, And the training I do is a lot more exploratory. You know, I can play again in a way where there's no motivation other than the joy of play and it feels like being a kid again and especially now as a new dad you know I've got a six week old at home and I'm playing with him and you know just just seeing as he's discovering how to like kind of rock back and forth or like when he pushes his hand against me or his feet, he can push himself around a little bit. Like I'm inspired by those little moments. And I think when I go out to play or when I'm, I'm just messing around with him on the floor, I I find myself in that same joy of discovery that I had two decades ago, going out on my porch or on the playground and and climbing and jumping off stuff.
0: Beautiful. Yeah. That's, that's what it's all about is being able to continually come back to that source of joy with the practice and, I uh, think that's a good place for us to stop. I'd love to, uh, to talk more about the future of competitions and, and, uh, and what's going on with, uh, with fig and the, the presentations and, uh, or, uh being a commentator and all that. But I think, um, I think that's was the right message to end on there.
1: Yeah. It feels good. But yeah, I'm always, uh, happy to talk more shop. So awesome. See if the people oh. like the show, maybe come back for a sequel.
0: Yeah. I just noticed that you're, you're, uh, the, the your name has been Dina Epstein this entire time down at the bottom.
1: No, yeah, yeah, my <laughs> wife's name.
0: I used your computer for this. Okay. Well, that's all for today. Thanks, Frosty. Hey, you reached the end of another Evolve Move Play podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, if you want to be involved in the conversation, please consider joining us in our new membership subscription so you can get access to question and answers with our live speakers once a month, question and answers with me once a month, and a dedicated forum to discuss everything going on in the podcast as well as a general discussion of movement on our general movement forums if you're interested in that make sure to check out the link below get signed up and join a part of our membership community if you can't join our membership community right now it's still always helpful if you can like share and subscribe and even hit that bell and get notifications for upcoming evolve Move play podcasts but audio's for now and we'll see you next time thanks guys